Hey everybody, thanks for hanging out with me for just a couple of minutes. Here, our focus is being better and healthier than yesterday. Are you better? Are you healthier than you were yesterday? Here, we don't compare ourselves to him or to her. We compare ourselves to who we were yesterday. Self-improvement has no end. Health has no finish line. There are lifelong journeys where we take it one day at a time, and here we do it together. So let's do this. Before I get into the main content, if you want to get in contact with me, email and Instagram are the best ways to get in contact. Email me at benpagedc at gmail.com and on Instagram, benpagedc. And if you listen to this, go to Instagram, tag me on the episode, and I'll tag you right back and we get to know each other. I love to get to know the community and I would love to get to know you. So let's get on to the main content. Today I am really excited. This is uh, this is someone I've been following on Instagram for a while now, and I've really enjoyed his content and everything that that he's bringing to the world. So now I get to bring this this guest to you, and and he gets to explain who he is and all the great things he's doing to help people be more human so um bill is our is our is our uh, guest today and he's the author of eat like a human i mean it couldn't be better <laughs> eat like a human and that's what we're going to be talking about today and and other things of course but before we get into this into uh his book and who he in in the conversation that we're going to have i'm going to allow bill just to kind of introduce introduce himself to you the listeners you, so you can get to know him and that windy road of how he got to where he is today and then and then we'll jump into the main content of this episode so again welcome to the podcast bill and would you like to just kind of give us a a, a little introduction to who you are and how you got to where you are today sure ben i'd be happy to thank you for having me on and, and allowing me to talk a little bit about my work to your audience so uh I am just like all of us. You know, it's very interesting. I, I did an interview with uh, Pete Evans one day, and I asked him to introduce himself, and he said, "I'm a human." <laughs> and uh, it, it, it's, it's so hard to nail uh, down exactly who we are beyond that. And I think that's absolutely fine. But I guess if you were to describe me, I'm I'm a food archaeologist, a primitive technologist, and a chef. And it may seem like some of those things don't work together, but they do seamlessly. And it took me my entire life to figure out how well they did work together. So as an archaeologist, uh, my work is uh, obviously prehistory for the past, uh, I focus on the past three and a half million years worth of our existence and our ancestors' existence on this planet. And it's through the lens of what we call experimental archaeology. So as a primitive technologist, I've been trained and, and I've been very lucky to be, have been trained by some of the best primitive technologists in the world uh, on stone tool technology, primitive ceramics, tanning, foraging, all of those sorts of things. And uh, the, the type of archaeology that I've always done is, in addition to just traditional field archaeology, where you're digging in the ground and the square units and all, um, we experimental archaeologists use primitive technologies to replicate uh, technologies of the past and then run them through a series of experiments to try to better understand uh, how tools were made, how they functioned, how they were used, how they fit within cultural systems of the past, and most importantly, try to really do our best job of, of uh, interpreting uh, life in the past, what, what, what human life was like in the past. And what's super cool is about, I don't know, about 18 years ago or so, uh, I've realized that just about every single primitive technology, and when I say old. I'm, the, the, the earliest stone tool dates to 3.3 million years, and we probably someday will find something even older. But so for, for three and a half million years worth of technological in, innovation and advancement, um, the best minds of our species and, our, and, and, the, and the best minds of our ancestors were almost always focused on something to do with food. Like all of these technologies had almost all of them had something to do with food getting food, processing food, cooking food, distributing food, sharing food, whatever. Almost every single prehistoric technology had something to do with food. And for someone who has battled with weight my entire life and, and health through food my entire life, I've been trying to answer this question, how should I be eating to be the healthiest, you know, what should I be eating to be the healthiest person uh, ever that I could be? 
I realized that I really need to pay attention to those technologies that we've used for very long periods of time in traditional ancestral diets to, to understand what the healthiest human diet today could be. And I know we'll dive a lot deeper as we, as we move forward, but to quick uh, fast forward, I'm 48 years old now. Um, I have never been uh, as healthy as I am this very moment. I have three kids and a wife, you know, a family of five. Um, all the approaches that I've learned through my work, we apply to our family uh, it, with very, you know, obviously wonderful, wonderful results. And we're so, my wife and I were so excited about the way that we approach um, this food that we wanted to share it with the world. So we wrote the book, uh, Eat Like a Human. And most recently, we I just left, uh, I used to teach at Washington College for 15 years, and my wife and I just branched off on our own, and we started the Modern Stone Age Kitchen here in Chestertown, Maryland, which is where we put all of this into practice and uh, teach a whole host of different classes, but also produce the food that we believe in uh, for, the, for the community here. Oh, wow. That is awesome. And I, and I, I love how you, you, what you were saying before about you've never been as healthy as you've been in your whole life and you're 40 years old. I mean, normal 48, sorry. 40, and normally as the years go by, everyone kind of, well, I got to have just a little bit more pain, a little bit less memory, a little less movement, but it shouldn't be like that. And most people don't believe that. But if we do certain things in our life that we're going to be talking about today, and one very important one is what we put in our bodies every single day. It's one of the ways that we don't have to live like that. So many patients of mine come and they just think that's how it is. I mean, well, I knew I had pain, so it was just going to get worse and it's going to get worse and I was going to have to live with it and I'm going to learn, with, learn to live with it. No, it's not like that. We can actually feel better 10 years from now. I mean, we can feel a lot stronger 10 years from now if we just change lifestyles. And that's exactly what you guys did. And now you're showing it to the world. And I, and I love that. But yet food, um, can we just basic food? What is food? So many people are, are, have a hard time understanding just what we should be consuming because what we see in the supermarkets, what we see around, I mean, it's so so hard for people just to read, what should I be eating? So what are, what are and, and there's so many different types of, we can call them diets. I just, I, I call it um, ways to, to, to nourish ourselves, but there's so many different diets out there too. And I could talk about where I'm going in my, in, 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 in my evolution, but to you, what is, what should we be eating as humans? That's a really good question. So, and I love the way you phrased it. So let me uh, front load my answer with a couple of, of basic things. Number one, um, we like to believe, you know, and we, we, we consider ourselves, we consider humans as omnivores and we are, but we're not omnivores by design. We are not, our, we do not have the digestive tract nor the physical makeup to eat all the different foods that we eat on a regular basis. In fact, we don't even have the physical makeup to eat the foods that literally built us as humans without assistance. We are omnivores by technology, not omnivores by design. You know, a cow has a four-chambered stomach and a palate and, and, and the way that they approach eating tough vegetable materials like, like grass, they're perfectly designed to eat grass. Granivorous birds like ducks and geese are perfectly designed to eat grains. They have a crop where the, where the grains sit and, and soak and ferment and sometimes even sprout. And they have a gizzard, which actually grinds the grains up, right? But they're perfectly designed to eat grains. The only food that humans are perfectly designed to consume is raw dairy from our mothers when we're infants, period. For a short period of our, of our life, we are perfectly designed to consume that food. And then when we start uh, getting weaned off of, of milk and eating solid foods, we lose, uh, suppress the ability to, to perfectly and, and efficiently and safely digest that, that dairy. And we move on to something else. Now, I, I say that that doesn't mean we shouldn't be eating all these different foods that we have in our diets. I say that because that lays the foundation for what I truly believe is that humans have one of the least efficient digestive tracts of any animal on the planet. And we have literally built our bodies on the backs of diets that introduced new resources we had no business eating um, and did things to those resources to make them safe and nourishing before we put them in our mouths. And that's one of the big differences between humans and, most, and almost every other animal on the planet. We 
the, the, the most important things we do to our food happens before it even touches our lips. And that's how we, we've been able to extract resources that we've never had in our diets before, do things with those resources to make them safe and nourishing, to get them into our mouths. And then most importantly, get those nutrients we're putting into our mouths where they need to be in our body. You know, I call it the can of soup effect, but there's, there's so many people believe that they can go to the store and pick up a can or a jar or any labeled food and look on the back and it shows, this is a cup of coffee, but pretend it has something on the back. And it says, you know, has this many calories and carbohydrates and vitamin A, vitamin D, whatever it is. And they fully believe that if they consume that entire can of whatever it is or jar or box or whatever, all of those nutrients are going into their bodies. And it's not. And you know, Stephen uh, Gundry, I, I put it very well he, when, he, when he was describing our digestive tract, by putting something in our mouth, we're not putting it in our body. Our digestive tract is like the Lincoln Tunnel, right? If you're in New Jersey and you go into the Lincoln Tunnel, you don't go into the Hudson River, right? The only thing you're guaranteed to do is come out the other end of New York. So it's, it's the same sort of thing. We put it in our mouths. It's, going, it's taking a trip through our bodies, but it's not going into our bodies. If those nutrients are going to get used by our bodies, two things have to happen. One is our bodies have to be healthy in the right state, right? And number two, those nutrients also have to be in the right state. And a fantastic example is uh, niacin with maize. We don't have time, I think, to go into the full conversation, but maize, the most widely grown grain in the world, is one of the most difficult for the human body to fully digest. One of the nutrients, key nutrients it has is niacin, but it's in a form called niacitin, which our bodies can't access. If we, and it doesn't matter if we grind the corn, boil the corn, make what, anything out of it, unless we use an ancestral approach called nishtamalization, which is at least 4,000 years old. And that's the only thing that will release that nutrient niacin and make it accessible to our bodies. And the quick takeaway message from this is that even though maize has been in the human diet in the Americas for about 9,000, 10,000 years, um, when Europeans took it back to Europe, maize, they didn't take the technology. And in the wake, you can actually watch and see maize as it travels through Europe, um, this horrible disease called pellagra, which was a deficiency of niacin in the diet, follows right behind it. And it happens in Spain, it happens in Italy, it happens in Eastern Europe, it happens at the end of the Irish potato famine in Ireland, it happens again back here in, in the uh, early 20th century in the American Southeast. And over several hundred years, millions, I mean, millions of people got sick and hundreds of thousands died from a deficiency of niacin in their diet while eating massive quantities of a food that contained a decent amount of the niacin in it. It's just we couldn't access it because we weren't processing it using an ancestral approach. Now, that, there's, there's much more to that story, but I wanted to say that because the question that you asked and why I loved it is because it's the same question that I've asked my entire life. It's the same question that most of us are asking, what do I eat? And the problem is for most animals, that's a valid question, right? Cow says, what do I eat? It eats grass. <laughs> Duck says, I eat grains, whatever. Humans can't just ask that question because the most important part of answering that question is not the what, it's the how. How should I be eating? Because the reality is most of what we eat, we have no business eating unless we do something to it properly. And in fact, the reality is we can eat almost anything if we process it properly to make it as safe and nourishing as possible. And that's what all of those ancestral approaches to food were focused on, making food safe and as nourishing as possible. So it's, it's sort of like asking a question, should I eat bread? Well, listen, I can, I, I can sit here and talk the rest of the time we're talking and, 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 and make a convincing argument that real, wild, slow fermented sourdough bread can be a part of a healthy human diet. At the same time, I would say just about any other bread, we should never touch our lips because it's not, and, and it's not about the fact that it had wheat or not. It's that it has that wheat been processed to make it as safe and nourishing as possible for my body. Same sort of, I can talk about dairy, we can talk about, and all of it. So the fact that somebody might not be nishtamalizing maize maybe isn't that big of a deal in a modern diet because we have access to so many different foods. But the problem is for as almost the entirety of our existence, all of these traditional approaches to food have made food as safe and nourishing as possible for our bodies. But modern food processing is done to make big mega, you know, multinational corporations a lot of money at the expense of our health, at the expense of safety, at the expense of nutrients and nutrient availability, nutrient density. And it's happening at every part of our food system. There's not a food that you can say something to me about 
that I cannot tell you a, a horrible story about the modern food industry ripping nutrients away, or at least not making the nutrients accessible to us. And, you know, things like mistomalization and fermentation and those things, when they're not happening, greatly impact the human body's ability to access the nutrients from the food. I don't care if you're buying it from Whole Foods or a big box store. It, just because you're putting it in your mouth doesn't mean it's safe and doesn't mean those nutrients get to go where they need to be. So to, to, to now to directly answer your question, what is a healthy human diet? A healthy human diet to me is no matter what your resource base is, now, in the past, we would consider a hunter-gatherer resource-based the environment that they live in. You know, if they're on the top of a mountain 20,000 years ago, or in the in a, on African savanna 2 million years ago, wherever there is, you know, that's their that's their foodscape, their resource base. Yours might be you know, you, you, your local farmer's market or your local grocery store, or the restaurants around you, whatever it is, whatever your foodscape is, a healthy human diet is to take those resources and transform them into their safest and most nourishing form possible for you and your family's human bodies. And if that is the approach, we can, you know, without even getting up and moving, without shipping things across the world, without, you know, diving into these weird superfood, silly things, you can take the resources that you already have and make them incredibly nourishing for your body. So it's, you know, it's all about the how. It's all, it's all and, about the how. And what, what makes... So what's the easiest how? So what, what's the easiest type of food that we can that we can assimilate without having to do all these other things on the outside to make it possible that our bodies will actually assimilate the nutrition? What's the easiest food to assimilate? The easiest one to do in your own home, I think, is is just straight fermentation. There, I haven't. My, you know, my family and I have. Um, We've been very fortunate in not only doing research for this book, but the other re research and work that we've done. We've been in 27 countries or something like that. And, and, and we've been, we, we go to live and work with indigenous and traditional groups, learn how they employ, continue to use ancient or ancestral technologies to, to do exactly what I just said, make food safe and nourishing as possible. Um, and I have never witnessed read about, seen, heard of anything, a true, real, traditional diet that doesn't have fermentation at its core. Now, there are some uh, amazing restaurants in the world right now, like Noma, who's doing great, cool things. You know, it's the number one restaurant in the world again this year. Um, they're doing great stuff with fermentation. Now, they really use fermentation to release and create awesome flavors and aromas and textures in their food and they're charging 100 or $200 a plate or something for some of these things which is great but you know the cool really cool thing about fermentation which is really controlled rot i mean fermentation happens naturally when humans get involved we can tweak things or control a couple things um, to to create the end result that we're looking for like transforming a cucumber into a pickle or cabbage into sauerkraut right um, but when we do that not only do we create really cool textures and flavors and aromas, but we also uh, put those vegetables, if, if we're fermenting vegetables, through chemical and physical processes that in some, in all cases, make it uh, safer and more nourishing for our bodies, but in some cases actually create um, beneficial things, you know, not, only, not only probiotics, but sometimes help release enzymes and do a bunch of and, and vitamins that weren't either there or accessible in its raw state but now in its fermented state, it's a much healthier food uh, for us. And one thing I think people do need to realize is that um, now I start off the, the plant chapter uh, with, a, with a very strong statement. And it says uh, the very first sentence in the plant chapter is plants should scare the hell out of you. And they should. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't eat them. What's the, what, in fact, we eat tons of vegetables in our house. That is to say that we should regard vegetables the same way we regard, regard everything else in our food system. We should think about it. We should say, okay, should I eat this? If I'm going to eat this, how much of it should I eat? If I'm going to eat it and eat this much of it, what can I do to it to make it safe and nourishing as possible? We have this mindset today that vegetables are like this panacea and they're going to solve all of our problems. And you know, if we want to be healthy, we grab our cart, we go right into the produce section and we just start throwing stuff into the cart. So if some of it's good, more of it's better. And I'm just going to eat all these vegetables and get, and get healthy. Now, vegetables have amazing nutrition. There's no doubt, but there's two things we need to be concerned about. Number one, 
just because vegetables have that nutrition doesn't mean they release it to our bodies very easily. And in many cases, um, they don't release it at all unless we do something to it. Or our bodies have to work really, really hard to access that nutrition. And number two, and perhaps more importantly, all vegetables have some level of toxin in them. All of them do. Some of these toxins are sort of benign and they, and they don't do anything bad to us. Some of them will kill us outright, right? If we eat something like a poisonous mushroom. Um, but most of them sit in this middle area, which is really dangerous that uh, these toxins can, can cause small problems over time or build up over time in our bodies. Things like oxalates, uh, which are incredibly uh, problematic in, in modern human populations. And the problem is we are so disassociated from our from where our food comes from. Most of us don't farm and very few of us do any sort of foraging. So we're left to listening to other people tell us, you know, what sort of vegetables we should eat and how much. And a lot of that is obviously is marketing. And for some reason, we've listened to a, a cartoon in the 1960s to tell us that spinach is like going to solve the world in the 70s. So um, we're, we're really confused and we don't understand that plants naturally have toxins in them. And they do that to, especially wild plants, to, to battle fungus and to battle insects and to battle predators. They, they can't move, so they're trying to protect themselves and they do it by, by engaging in chemical warfare. This isn't to say we shouldn't eat them. It is to say that we need to recognize that. And because of that, there's some plants we probably shouldn't eat. There's some plants we should eat in moderation. And there's a whole bunch of plants that we should do something to, to make them safer and more nourishing. And usually, usually not always, usually that's, um, that's fermentation. But a quick example of uh, danger in, in, the, in the American grocery store is spinach. Spinach and almonds, huge, high, incredibly high level of oxalates. And for those who don't know what oxalates are, oxalates under a microscope look like little tiny shards of glass. And the problem when humans consume oxalates is that you know, our body recognizes them as being incredibly dangerous. It grabs them and stores them in places and sort of sequesters them to, and, and to protect our bodies, but they build up over time and sometimes over months, over years. And this is one of the things, and I know we started the podcast like this, when you get to be 35, 40, 45 years old, we've normalized arthritis and we've normalized joint pain. We've normalized swelling of our feet. We get out of bed like, oh, cause so many of us have it, right? We just think it's normal. We get out of bed at 40 years old, like, oh, I mean, my legs hurt. And we walk up the stairs at night to go to bed and we hear them creaking and they're popping. And yeah, this is just part of getting, no, this isn't part of getting old, right? This isn't how we should be living. If you look at wild animals around the world, like they live these incredible lives and then kill over dead. Like that's how they live. That's how I want to live, right? I don't want to die the last 30 years of my life. I want to live this incredible life and heal over dead and, 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 and the same for every, everybody that I know. This, you should not have this sort of, these, these sorts of pains. And quite often, if you look at, at something like oxalates, they're often the culprit because those oxalates get stored in our extremities. They get stored in joints. A lot of the foot pain, in fact, gout is quite often misdiagnosed. It's actually pseudogout. It's not uric acid. It's actually uh, oxalic or calcium oxalate. Uh, kidney stones, uh, the little calcium deposits on our, all of these things. So spinach is incredibly high in oxalates and so are almonds. And for this is the, uh, you know, we've created by, by making foods and we think this is convenience and we think this is this is one of, one of the wonderful things about the modern uh, industrial food system we can have spinach all year round and and we've touted it as the superfood so now a, a limiting factor in the past would have been well if you ate spinach when it grew nat not naturally we farm it but it, where it grows in your backyard or if you had it in your garden for a period of two weeks and the rest of the year we didn't eat it, it wouldn't be an issue. In fact, we get a little nutrition from it. I love the flavor of spinach. We do good. And then we wouldn't have it the rest of the year. But now we can have it frozen all year round, shipped from all over the place all year round. We've touted it as a health food. People are eating incredibly dangerous. They're eating spinach shakes every single day and throwing in kale, which is high. So uh, we've created a problem where it didn't exist before. Almonds are the same thing. We just had for the a, a, a really um, interesting peer-reviewed uh, article came out uh, in the past year where it's showing the kids under the age of 10 years old, under the age of 10 years old are presenting with kidney stones for the first time ever. And it's because they're growing up in households where they've replaced milk with almond milk. 
and these kids are are drinking the same quantity of almond milk as they would have been drinking in cow's milk or another milk, and they're they're starting to show up with, with these with these problems. So again, almonds aren't necessarily bad. Spinach isn't necessarily bad, but by understanding that plants have issues that we need to be aware of, we can we can navigate this um, this sort of. And I know it's confusing, and I know it's hard work, but my gosh, it's your health and it's your family's health, and it's worth the effort to to think about it and to learn about it. And that it, it's it, I love how you talk about this because this is kind of like my evolution. I'm a huge gardener. I love gardening. I mean, so I love being out there and I love growing food, but I've come to the point where I've learned also that a lot of these plants, um, like you were just explaining, I love how you explained it because I've never explained it this way because this is, it's this, it's something that I'm learning and I'm getting ready to try to explain it, but I love having people come on and explain it this way because this is what, I, this is what my evolution is moving into. And it's, it's less and less plants and more and more of other foods. And, and the, the one thing I wanted to, to ask about plants though, so, so if, we, if we eat the plant, is heating it? So what is the best way to eat the plant? Is it by, is it by boiling it? Is it by, uh, is it by uh, how, what's the best way to eat the plant then? So well, it depends if on the plant. Eat, yeah, if we're gonna eat a plant. <laughs> Because what, what we do a lot here is we like we have Swiss chard and we have lettuce and we very little spinach, but we do have Swiss chard and we and we use beet leaves also and we boil them and we put them on like we make like a kind of like a pizza out of it, but it's boiled leaves. I mean, does that kind of neutralize, does that help neutralize the what we could say is the, the, the chemical warfare that these plants have or 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 does that help or does that not help or a uh, question? Well, I'll tell you what I know, and then I'll point you in the direction of somebody who's an expert in some of this. So I, I do a lot of work in plant toxins in general and trying to understand how they were detoxified prehistorically, historically, and, and, and what, we can, what we can learn from that to apply today. And I'll give you a couple examples in a minute. But before I, I go on, I do want to say as far as oxalates are concerned, um, there's a woman, I don't know if you've heard of her, Sally Norton. Um, she's out of Virginia. She's, a, she's doing a lot of fantastic work with, with oxalates. She has had her own battle as have I with oxalates to the point where right now she doesn't include any oxalate, you know, high oxalate containing plants, um, in her diet whatsoever, nor, nor with her patients. Um, I do, I, I want to find that processing technology that really makes a huge difference with oxalates. And, uh, I haven't found it yet, but what I have found is this. Um, it depends on the, the way you process the plant to neutralize the, or, or mitigate the effects of the toxin depends on the plant and the toxin. So um, as far as uh, oxalates are concerned, one of the issues with oxalates is that they will also bind with calcium in your body and, and rob your body of, of calcium, which it obviously needs for, for bone health and the like. Uh, one thing you can do is if you're cooking something with oxalates, especially spinach or Swiss chard, that's beet leaves, they're all high in oxalates, um, is cook them with some kind of dairy, um, either, either butter or cream or milk, and that will help it create its own calcium oxalates, and it won't rob your body, at least of the calcium, or at least not as much. Uh, there have been a bunch of studies with boiling. Boiling certain things does help release some of the oxalates into the water. If you're boiling or steaming a high oxalate containing food, dump out the water. It is pure poison. Don't keep it, don't do anything with it, get rid of it, it's not food. So that's number one. Fermentation, there is some work being done with fermentation and there's some traditional cultures who will, that will ferment high oxalate containing plants. But again, uh, from what I can tell so far, and there's not enough work has been done in this, is that it doesn't, um, it doesn't get rid of the oxalate. It does reduce it a little bit. But, but the reality is one of the things that we should be doing is eating seasonally. And if we're eating seasonally, then you know, if, if you want to eat the same food every single day, all year round, then you need to be, which I don't recommend because we've never done that in the history of our species. If you do want to do that, you need to be very, very concerned with the levels of toxins in a lot of these plants. If you're eating truly seasonally, it, you don't, I'm not saying not to pay attention to it, but it doesn't become as big of an issue because you might get a little bit of this now. I mean, every food that we eat has some level of something bad in it. But if, 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 we're, if we're eating a very diverse diet, 
you know, we get a little more of this today and in two weeks we don't get any of it. And, and your body has, your body is, we have a liver for a reason. We have different functions in our bodies to help detoxify things because we've always eaten a diet that has some toxins in it. The problem is when we say spinach is amazing, it's the best food on the planet, we have access to it all year round and it's super cheap and we can do this, we eat it every day, our bodies just can't keep up with it. Um, but let me give you a couple other examples. So I did a, a, a research on potatoes in South America. Um, I went down and I lived with uh, an Aymara group and uh, up on the Altiplano of Bolivia and then with a Quechua family in the Andes in Peru. And this is the same region, the same area where potatoes were first domesticated about 10,000 years ago. One thing we, uh, everyone needs to understand is that first, all wild potatoes, the, the ancestor to the domesticated potato is incredibly dangerous, incredibly toxic, like will kill you toxic. And we, we always heard in school that, you know, when Columbus came to the new world and you know, he, there were 300 to 500 different varieties of potatoes under domestication then, and it's true but most of those were incredibly toxic as well still. And um, the, the modern potato, even the russet Idaho potato that you get in the grocery store still has those toxins in them. They just are at a lower level. And uh, if you eat a couple potatoes, no big deal. But if you're, especially kids today in America, and obviously we lived in Ireland for a year, obviously Ireland are eating massive quantities of potatoes and French fries and potato chips and mashed potatoes and baked potatoes and all this. We need to be aware of uh, the toxic uh, intake from, from eating all these potatoes. Po uh, potatoes have, are very high in glycoalkaloids. They're very high in lectins. They're very high in oxalates. So there's a lot of work to be done with the potato. And what I wanted to do was go down because the, the, the two groups that I spent time with still eat not only massive quantities of potatoes, but they still grow and consume some of these ancient varieties that are really high in the toxins that are still present in today's potatoes, but just at lower levels. And I wanted to see what they were doing and see if we could apply that you know, today. And it was fascinating. So there are three ways that, uh, well, first off, every potato, except for one example, I'll give you in a minute, every potato that they ate, they peeled, period. There was no doubt about it. And it makes sense. It turns out that the most of the toxins in a potato are actually in the skin. Now, I know everybody's listening. Oh my gosh, my parents told me to always eat the skin. Most of the nutrients are there. Well, most of the nutrients are not there, but there are nutrients in that skin. It's just not worth it because most of the toxins are there. And it makes sense. Why? Because those toxins are there to protect for a potato plant. That's the most important part of that plant. That's the energy storehouse of that plant. And you're trying to protect it from things invading and hit. So it makes sense it's on the outside. What is really, I think, uh, telling is that when I was with these, these, these families, amazing families, they didn't have a potato peeler, like the little thing of peel potatoes with. And the potatoes don't look like the football shaped russet potato we get at the grocery store. These were heirloom potatoes that look like, you know, these knocky dobby looking things. So to, for them to peel a potato, was a chore. It wasn't like, you know, if I gave you a potato peel and a russet potato, you'd be done in 10 seconds. But if I gave you this knobby thing and a half sharp knife and said, peel that or peel a bushel of them, you'd, you'd think I'm crazy and I'm there all day. It was that important. And I mean, I'm talking, there were people that ate, ate 10, 12 potatoes a day. I mean, this is how many were getting peeled. Whether you boiled it or did anything to it, they were always peeled except for one example I'll give you in a minute. So number one, if you take nothing else away from this, Peel, peel your potatoes. And by the way, if they're starting to turn green, do not eat them. They're not food any longer. The, 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 the solanine in the potatoes has risen to a level that um, people go to the hospital every year still and get very sick from eating potatoes. Um, improperly stored potatoes that have started to turn green. So if, they ha if they're starting to turn green, um, get rid of them. So, uh, so the one family in Bolivia, the reason I went is because they practice something called uh, pasa which is a form of geophagy. Geophagy is the intentional consumption of earth or clay. Almost every animal on the planet does it. Our ancestors used to do it quite a bit and there's still pockets of, of, of human groups around the world that still consume clay on a regular basis. Animals, including humans, consume clay for two main reasons. One, because uh, if they need the minerals that are in the clay, right? And quite often you see pregnant or lactating women um, consuming clay in different places because they have a higher nutritional need at that, obviously, for at that time in their life. Uh, and the second reason that animals consume clay or earth is because there are certain toxins that will bind to the clays 
And when they bind, when they're bound together, it's not recognizable by our bodies and it'll pass safely through our digestive tract while we actually, but the nutrition that's in there that we need can actually go where it needs to go. So this is exactly what they did with these potatoes. They, and in fact, I, this is the, the crazy example I was starting to tell you about. They didn't peel these potatoes and these were the most toxic potatoes I ate the entire time I was down there. So the most, the most poisonous potatoes they had, they detoxified solely by dipping it in a mixture of clay and water and salt and then eating it in between every bite. So it was potatoes we baked in this little clay oven we built. And then uh, there was a little bowl that had a special clay and a water and salt. And they, it was like a baked potato. Before every single bite, they would kind of like how you would eat a French fry with ketchup, right? They would dip it in the clay and eat it, dip it in the clay and eat it, dip it in the clay and eat it. That's the only time they didn't peel the potato, which um, really makes me believe that that was one of the most powerful detoxification strategies period because they didn't even peel it and they were so poisonous so that was one uh they did a freeze drying fermenting sort of thing as well called to make something called chuno but then in peru they would make something called tokash and again they take these poisonous toxic potatoes they dig a huge pit in the ground load it with the potatoes fill it with fill this pit with water and let them ferment for about minimum six months. And the stuff that I had when we were there was two years. It had fermented in the ground for two years. Take it out, take the, the peel, it comes right off. I mean, it's almost mush. And they would eat it or they would use it in a traditional porridge like this that they would do. So um, the fermentation seems to be a very powerful tool in detoxifying potatoes. And one thing that we do here in my house and also at the Modern Sunday Kitchen is that we use that same process We uh, first uh, when we make uh, French fries and potato chips, which can done properly, can actually be part of a healthy diet, right? So this is what we do. We peel the potatoes, we cut them into the shape that we want them. We put them in a brine between a two or 5% brine, ferment them for maybe seven, 10 days at the most, uh, and then we, we rinse them off and then we fry them in high quality animal fat. And the result is a, a, a much safer and more nourishing potato, French fry or potato chip than if you didn't do it. And there's a couple more pieces to it if we have time to talk about, but you know that's just one example. That's geophagy, eating intensely eating the clay. We see it in California with Indians with acorns. We see it in Sardinia as well uh, with, they would make, they think it was the precursor to polenta uh, it was actually an egg corn bread where it was made with with ash and clay and egg corns. And it was they were using both of those things to, to detoxify it. So I know it wasn't a direct answer to how do we do it with the vegetables, but the answer is it depends. And um, it's worth looking into. But again, fermentation seems to be a recurring theme. And one, one more quick thing about the potatoes. If you, because I've seen so many recipes that say this, if you are boiling a potato, I see everybody's on this sort of zero waste kick, which is awesome. But there's some things that we just shouldn't eat. And one of those things is the water that the potatoes have been boiled in. I've seen sourdough recipes where you keep the starchy water and you use it to make your sourdough. Don't do it. If you're boiling the potatoes, the boiling is not only to cook the potatoes and make them soft enough to eat. The boiling is also to get some of those toxins out of the potatoes and into the water. To me, what's left behind, you want to put it in your compost or do something great, but don't use it for anything else. That is toxic water. Same, and, and not to get off topic, but I'll say the same thing um, with beans. If you are cooking beans, if you're soaking beans, throw that water away. And then when you cook the beans, if there's extra water, throw that water away as well. Beans are incredibly problematic unless they're processed properly. And that, that soaking water and all that uh, is, should be discarded. Oh, that is, that just brings me back to me always eating the skin of the potato because I thought it was the healthy part too. <laughs> I used to it, it makes well. me, it makes me laugh, but I, I mean, but I mean, it's so great to know because I was one of those people. Of course I've changed. I mean, I've, I've come to the point where m my diet is basically meats and fats now because of all of I ev the evolution of what I've learned through exactly people like you, people that have studied our ancestors. What did our ancestors eat? And from what I've learned is that the majority of them tried to eat fatty meat. That's what, and that's what I'm learning. Yeah. Is that kind of where you came to? Is that kind of the conclusion you came to? Also is a lot of our ancestors tried to eat more, 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 more based on meats than any other than any other type of food 
Yeah, 100%. Uh, and there's there's some really amazing anthropologists that believe, and, and I believe it as well, that it is animals in our diets that actually help make us human. And most important, and, and, but the funny thing is we always default, and, and you and I both did it today as well, default, when we think about animals in our diet, we, we, we default to meat because that's what we see in the grocery store. I mean, that's when we think about eating an animal, we always think about eating meat. And one of the very interesting things about looking at our ancestral dietary past and the role of animals in it is that meat, introducing meat into our diet didn't make a huge difference. We actually started eating meat at 3.4 million years ago and we started introducing the entire animal and we had the, that was all scavenging. Other animals killed the animal. We came in and hacked off pieces of meat that were left behind. Um, when we start hunting, at 2 million years ago, we were the predators and we had what we call first access to the entire animal. And it is then that we, our bodies and our brains jump exponentially in, in size. And two things happened at 2 million years ago. One is we started hunting and two is we started actually controlling fire. So the combination of the two is incredibly powerful. But as far as the animals are concerned, you know, if you think about, if part of this conversation, which I, I it is about nutrient density, um, meat is a heck of a lot more nutrient dense than any plant on the planet. So if you're eating meat, you're getting more for that effort than if you're eating the same weight in, in literally any vegetable, period. Um, but meat is actually one of the least nutrient dense part of an animal, right? Even though it's in most of our conscious, it's, it's the part we always think of, it's the blood, the fat, and the organs that contain not only the most nutrition uh, and in the most dense form, but also in the most bioavailable form. It is so much easier for our bodies to access the nutrition and the blood, the fat, and the organs uh, than it is to access it from the meat, right? And in fact, uh, red, and it's not to say we shouldn't eat meat, meat's a fantastic food source, but if we're really thinking about the most nourishing and by the way, ethical and sustainable way to approach animals in our diet, it's eating animals, not just eating meat. So a complete true nose to tail approach which is what we've done for 2 million years. Um, it's so far out of most of our conscious today in, in the modern Western world, but we need to get back to it because and here's just a couple of statistics. Um, we eat about 50, what ends up in the market that we have access to to purchase is about 55% of a pig and about 50% 50, 50 of a cow by weight. So you, we're, we're taking these animals, killing them, and half of it makes it to market for us to actually access and buy. Um, the other half uh, gets used for a lot of different things. Sometimes it's in things like dog food, sometimes it's fertilizer, sometimes it's thrown away, sometimes whatever, but it's not going into our bodies. Um, and to think about a world in which, and, and we're, having, we're having so many of these conversations, you know, plant versus meat and all these silly sorts of things. Um, let's have a real conversation and say, listen, what if we changed our mindset? We took the animals we already have and I, and, and I can tell you right now, if all we did, it sounds simple, but it's going to be hard, change our mindset. And we considered instead of 50% of that animal, considered something like 95% of that animal by weight as food, we would more than double the nutrition that comes out of every single animal. We could more than double the amount of nutrition that's available from all the animals we currently have. We can feed more than double the population right now by just changing our mindset. Because you know, meat, again, is one of the least nutrient dense parts. And if you include the other half, you're including not only more, uh, you know, more than half the nutrition density of that animal, but more nutrition that wasn't available in just the meat. Then not only are you eating a more nutritious diet, from an ethical perspective, killing an animal and using 90 something percent of it to feed and nourish my family is something that sits a lot better with me than killing half of, you know, eating half of it. And from a sustainability level, we already covered that, but even from an economic level, from both the consumer and the producer, right, or the farmer, those cuts of meat or those cuts of the animal I'm talking about are cheaper, right, than sirloin and T-bone steak and filet or whatever. And imagine a world in which you have a, you know, a farmer on a small farm really doing an amazing job raising animals, uh, you know, raising them properly, slaughtering them properly, butchering them properly, all of it, but they're struggling. I mean, they all are struggling right now. Imagine if now you had a market that doubled for them, right? It's not just the meat. Now they had a real market to sell all of their livers and their hearts and their spleens and their fat, 
all of it and their bones and their marrow, all of it. That everything, that entire conversation changes literally overnight by doing nothing but changing our mindset. Now, the reality is to do that, we have to change the way we think about our food. We have to change a bunch of laws. We got to change it. You know, there's a lot of things that actually do have to fall into place. But, you know, one of the things that I'm fighting for more than ever right now is to just have that nose to tail approach to animals and, and getting, you know, literally putting a face back on our plates in, in our in our kitchens and in our homes and on our dinner tables. Because when we remember that an animal died for us to eat, we treat it in a different way. We respect it differently. And everybody at the table has a different sort of viewpoint about where they are in the world and their relationship with humans and animals and the environment and the whole thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, that just brings you back to when I, we, I raised chickens on pasture for a year. And I, and I remember the respect I had for those animals was, is crazy. I mean, we would raise them up then, but when we butchered them, we kept everything. We didn't, the only thing we composted was, was actually the intestines and the feathers. Everything else was kept and we ate everything. And some of, some of the best foods that I ate, I remember from those chickens, wasn't the meat. It was the hearts with onion and it was the liver made into a, a kind of like, a, it, was a, it, was a, it was a pate that was kind of like, that seemed kind of like a, a meatloaf made out of the, the chicken mm. and, and I And I remember, do, and it was just, I don't know if it was just, so good because I made it from chickens that I raised or if it was really just that good. But I remember it was the, those chickens were utmost respect. I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean, they, and, and I see that also when I when I was able to go hunting and I would be able to hunt elk. The way I would treat that animal, I mean, it was and the way we would eat it. It just oh, yeah, I, I, I and, and I see how it's kind of coming back. There are a lot of people that are starting to raise their own animals and they're starting to butcher their own animals and they and they save every last part of it like our ancestors did. And I see that that the 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 health of these families are are incredible. But, yeah, I love how you talk about that. And it is important. I'm reading more and more and I'm trying to. Uh, also help people understand that the importance it's not just the meat but it's the fat I mean the fat is actually very nutritious it's it's not going to be fat there's there's so much nutrition in what is the fat of a healthy raised animal and also all of its organs if it's raised healthily and properly it's incredible so I loved having you on because well first I, I I love learning so I always learn so that's beautiful but I love to see how we're coming together and we're starting to figure out exactly what human nutrition is and it's, it's been like the last hundred years, it's kind of been the opposite. And has, like you've said, the, these, these, the, the way that we process the foods, like the steel mills, instead of the, instead of the mills, the, the stone mills, uh, and just the way food is processed, it's not what it used to be. And then bringing back what true nutrition is. I mean, tr true nutrition starts at fat and, fat and organs. And then we yeah. go from there. It's not, it's not, everyone thinks that the, that the vegetables are the, are the, are the nutrient dense foods, but the true nutrient dense foods are the fats, the organs, and then the meats. So I, I so, I so appreciate that. Um, I would love to get you, I'd love to ask you another, a couple more questions, but, but we'll have to have you back on because I want to know more about how you ferment, but of course we've gone way long already. And I would love to know how you ferment because I do like vegetables. That's the thing. I do like vegetables. I do love to garden actually my second book's all about gardening and nature uh, and how it helps us heal um, so it's something that's really important in my life but like I said as I as I've been involving my own nutrition I realized that it's not the garden it's it's properly raised meats and 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 the animal that truly is what's going to give us the nutrition that we really need as human beings so if I can learn how to how to be able to better eat those vegetables I would be stoked <laughs> Well, let me know. I'd be happy to come back on. Awesome. awesome. Well, again, thanks a ton for coming on. I mean, I love learning. I'm, I'm, I know the listeners are going to learn a lot from this, and I'll definitely have to have you come back on and talk about fermenting, um, how we can ferment these, these, the best way to ferment these foods so we can, so you can take advantage of the nutrition that they do have. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Thank you so much. I sure hope you liked that episode with Bill. I definitely did. And before I let you go, just want to remember, remind you that this is a grassroots movement. This grows because we get the word out one person at a time. It's not going to happen through the media. This is too important. 
And a great way to get the word out is leaving a review of the podcast. My goal is still to get 50 reviews before the end of the year. Help me reach that goal. If you haven't left a review on iTunes, type in the Wellness Farmer Podcast. At the bottom, there's a button where you can rate and review this podcast. Do that. Let's hit 50 reviews before the end of the year. I know we can do this. Join my email list. You're never going to miss an episode. And by doing that, you also get a book that I wrote absolutely free called Earth and Us, Heal Naturally. Buying my books, so the books I do have for sale as gifts, especially in this season, is a great way to support and get the word out. Give Playing in the Dirt, The Four Pillars of Health, and the short ebook I wrote, Mental Well-Being Made, Made Simple as Gifts. If you're in the States, I'm going to make it even easier to give my books as a gift. Only you listening get this offer. If you buy two or more books from my website to give as gifts using the code GIFT, you only have to pay $10 a book. Now that is a wonderful gift at a great price that continues to give throughout your life. And finally, join my membership where we go, we, we go so much more deeper into how we bring the garden and our connection to nature and earth into the forefront of our journey for greater health and well-being. The first 50 members will get an incredibly reduced price and be locked into that price. So don't miss out on this opportunity. Go to www.pastelsverdesfarm.com slash subscription and let's start this journey together.